Gracious God, may only your words be spoken and your words be heard. Amen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16. John 3.16. It's a bit of a microcosm, a pithy summary of the Gospel of John. And as far as it goes, there's nothing wrong and quite a bit good about the verse itself. But in the hands and on the signs in end zones of some, it has unfortunately also become a microcosm of or a jarring exhibit A of what is so wrong and infuriating about so much of Christianity. A couple of years ago, it occurred to me that John 3.16 in particular, and Christianity in general, is one of the oldest games of telephone, or pass it on. Do you remember that game? Where one person whispers something to someone no one else can hear, and then that person whispers it to the person next to them, and then the message is passed on in that way around the line until the last person then announces the message out loud to the group. And because people don't always hear what is said to them correctly, because mistakes get made, and then those mistakes accumulate each time the message is passed along, what is said at the end of that game is often hilariously different than the original message. Or there is a related game you might know called broken picture telephone, where someone writes something on a slip of paper and hands it to the person next to them who has to draw what has been written on that piece of paper, but no one else sees what's on the piece of paper. Then the next person looks at that illustration and has to describe in writing what has been drawn. It's easier to show than to tell this game of broken picture, pass it on. So someone in this case would have written down, draw a car at the mechanics. They see that on a piece of paper and they draw this. And the person sitting next to them looks at this and writes down where no one else can see on a little post-it note, that's a picture of changing tires on a car. And so that person draws this. And the person sitting next to them looks at this picture and says and writes down, that is a tire-changing champion. And writes down, tire-changing champion, and hands it to the person sitting next to them. 
So looking at the words tire-changing champion, that person draws this illustration. The person sitting next to them looks at that illustration and writes down, that's a boy winning first place at building a carburetor. And so the person next to them reads the words, a boy winning first place at building a carburetor, and draws this. The person looking at that illustration writes down, that's a happy man with flowers, and draws that. And then the person looking at this illustration writes down on a piece of paper, I bring you flowers, and I have blue pants, and draws that. And so in only 11 steps, in only 11 moves, the original message of a car at the mechanic becomes, I bring you flowers and have blue pants. I think that something like that has happened with John 3.16. Again, there's nothing wrong and quite a lot to like about what was originally said. It is what's been done with the verse. How it has been passed on. The mistakes that have been made in interpretation and therefore how most people see or hear of it. That's the problem. I'm talking about well-intentioned knuckleheads who hold up signs at sporting events saying John 3.16. I'm talking about this verse having become the catchphrase for aggressive and therefore counterproductive evangelists who quote this verse at you. A friend of mine, a clergy colleague, told me that for a very long time he resented John 3.16. Here's what he said. In my freshman year of college, as I walked to a class, I was confronted by another student who put himself in my path and quoted John 3.16 at me in an attempt to save me. Instead of the verse we heard in the gospel this morning, this is what I heard. God so loved the world, though he can't bear to look at us because of our sin, that he gave his only son to suffer and die on the cross in our place and take the punishment for our sin, that whoever believes in him and says the sinner's prayer shall not perish in the eternal fires of hell, but have eternal life, will get into heaven. What I heard was, my friend said, God is angry and upset with us. God must satisfy God's sense of strict justice by killing his own son. God requires us to perform a salvation ritual in order to accept us. God will punish us forever if we do not comply, and that eternal life is only in heaven. John 3.16 has become a victim of a 2,000-year-long game of broken picture telephone, and its meaning has been twisted, missed, and perverted. So let's work our way backward this morning and try to recover the original message, what was originally said. 
The original meaning in the context of John is, of course, the third chapter of John, which contains a long conversation Jesus is having with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is described as a man of the Pharisees, a ruler, a leader who came to Jesus by night. Nicodemus is an important person. He's meant to be a representative or a symbol of a spiritual journey or quest. We're meant to wonder, why would he want to talk to Jesus? What's drawing him? And why would he come at night? Something seems to be drawing Nicodemus, and yet he's not at the stage where he can or where he chooses to see Jesus in broad daylight. He prefers to come to him under cover of darkness. No matter where you are, even in a place of darkness, wanting to keep your spiritual quest secret, Jesus meets you there and then invites you into a deeper place. Notice that Jesus, unlike a lot of Jesus' followers, do not take offense. Do not say, come back when you're ready. He doesn't send him away. He, doesn't, he just meets with him. There are times in our lives when we need to meet Jesus by night, when we view our relationship with God is almost a private matter. Jesus meets us there. But Jesus also invites us to a deeper place. Because there's other times when we relate to Jesus a little more in the open as a teacher. And that seems to be the second way that Nicodemus represents stages on a faith journey. Nicodemus shows himself to be in what might be called a seeker stage. He's not really quite sure what he's looking for. He's kind of poking around the edges. He is an established and well-respected religious authority, but he's curious. He wants something more. This is a stage of faith when we're wrestling intellectually with religion. When we ask a ton of questions, we hear certain things and we sense God's activity in our lives and we're trying to figure out how it all makes sense. Again, if that is where you are, Jesus, God in Jesus, meets you there and invites you to a deeper place. Nicodemus says Jesus is a great teacher, but Jesus begins talking about new life. In other words, Jesus challenges Nicodemus. He challenges him to more than intellectual assent to the faith. He says, you know, God is trying to create something new in you. God wants to recreate you, transform you. Jesus challenges Nicodemus. He challenges him to more than intellectual assent. He says, I'm telling you something about the nature of God that you can trust in your life. And once you've had the feeling that that, that is true, that, that God is trying to create something new in you, that God is recreating you, transforming you, you have a feeling of being born anew. There is a willingness 
to trust your life to God like you haven't before. All of this is up to the Holy Spirit. None of this is up to a human being. Jesus says Holy Spirit blows where it wants to and you don't know where it comes from or where it's going to go next. And it's then that Jesus says, no one has gone up to heaven except the one who came down from heaven. And just as Moses lifted up the snake, a symbol of death, on a pole so people would live, so must the Son of Man be lifted up on a symbol of death, the cross, so that people will have a different kind of life, a renewed life, eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. That eternal, in the eternal life that Jesus talks about and provides, refers to everlasting. Eternal means something that doesn't end, doesn't quit, never stops happening. Stay with that thought. Chew it over. Eternal, in eternal life, does not mean later or after this one. Eternal means unending, everlasting, something that we cannot lose. And it starts here. Now. And chew this over too. It also refers not just to the quantity of life, but to its quality. Eternal life is a way of living, it is a kind of living. Eternal life is an orientation, a worldview, a lens through which one views the world and daily events. As my friend says, now that I've rediscovered the original meaning of John 3.16, I know what it's about. God loves us without condition. God accepts us as we are. God desires not ritual transactions, but a lifelong process of healing and reconciliation and transformation. And eternal life begins now. The God that was revealed in Jesus is a God whose love knows no bounds. The God revealed in Jesus asks that we receive this gift of God's love. And having received that gift, we receive thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, eternal life. Right now. Because our lives are being reshaped and redefined by the love of God. All that may not fit on a handheld sign in the end zone of a football game. But it is the truth. And it's the truth that will set you free 
to be yourself a sign of God's unconditional, practical, everyday, generous love. Amen.